Hey, welcome to Plant Yourself. I'm your host, Howard Jacobson. Two quick announcements before we get to today's show. If you're interested in becoming a health coach, I'm offering another run due to popular demand for people who can't make 8 p.m. on Wednesday nights, Eastern Time. So we're doing another run of the program, which will meet the practicums will meet at 10 a.m. on Wednesdays, Eastern Time U.S., which means if you're in Europe or Africa, uh, that might be good for you. Also, if you're in the US and evenings aren't good and you have free time in the mornings, either 7 a.m. Uh, Pacific time or 10 to 1130 Eastern, then you can participate. If you want to find out more about becoming a wicked effective health coach, you can go to wellstartcoach.com. Second thing is, if you're not aware of it, Josh Lajani and I have a book that is free on Amazon Kindle. It's called Sick to Fit. And if you just go to Amazon and search for Sick to Fit, you'll be able to download it for free and read it on any Kindle enabled device, even a phone, smartphone, tablet, computer, whatever. All right, let's get to today's episode. This is the Plant Yourself podcast. I'm Howard Jacobson of plantyourself.com and wellstarthealth.com. This podcast is part of my mission to help you live a mindful and marvelous life. So today's guest is Judd Brewer. He is the Director of Research and Innovation at the Mindfulness Center at Brown University. He's a second time guest on the show. We talked about two years ago, and he had just finished publishing his groundbreaking book, The Craving Mind, which we talked about. And he had just started releasing these apps, one called Eat Right Now, which was for dealing with food cravings, another called Craving to Quit for smoking cessation, and was just about, I think, ready to unleash unwinding anxiety for, you guessed it, anxiety. And so I wanted to catch up with Judd. I saw some uh, Twitter things that he had posted about study results and research. And so I was curious, like now that he's released his findings into the wild and he's created apps around them, what's what's been going on? What is the state? Because, you know, the state of uh, addiction recovery is pretty dismal and abysmal. And if he had something that was moving the needle, I wanted to talk about it and also to talk about strategies for helping people with things that may not be full blown addiction, but eating. You know, a lot of people come to Wellstart because they want to stop eating the way they have been eating. They want to start eating according to their values, goals, priority. And yet the uh, the siren song of junk food and animal products can be very strong for them. So we did chat about some of his amazing findings, like uh, his patients quit smoking at five times the rate of the next most successful program. And he did mindfulness uh, program for doctors, medical doctors to reduce anxiety, and it reduced burnout by 50%. And we talked about what that means for the doctors, and what it means for their patients as well. And also, we ended up on this topic that maybe he was trying to explain to me two years ago, but I didn't pick it up or get it. But maybe it's a little bit new as well that willpower doesn't seem to exist in the brain or the mind. That is to say, there's no structures or mechanism in the brain that we know of that operate based on, you know, do this hard and unpleasant thing that you don't really want to do. And instead, they appear to operate on a very, very different and very, very simple and eminently hackable heuristic known as reward valuation. So I don't want to spoil it. We get into it in detail in the conversation. One quick thing. Don't fast forward um, just before we get to it, which is the new 
Well Start Coach training is going to begin in October. So we're giving ourselves plenty of lead time so we don't have to rush. If you're interested, check it out, wellstartcoach.com. If you are a medical professional looking to get better at helping your clients or your patients do what they say they want to do. If you are a coach and you'd like to add some wicked effective tools to your coaching tool belt so that you get predictable, effective results every single time. Or if you're thinking about becoming a health and wellness coach. This is a, a great starting point. All right. With that out of the way, let's talk about mindfulness. Without further ado, Judd Brewer, welcome back to the Plant Yourself podcast. Thanks for having me. Yeah. Some, uh, th those of us who can see, you've got this, this beautiful office with all these fancy graphs and charts and your, your, your new digs at Brown University, right? Yes, indeed. Yeah. Um, so I wanted to get you. I realized um, just when we got on the Skype that it said, you know, it, it has like the history of our conversation. And the last one was over two years ago, which surprised me. It seemed like a long time. Wow. So here I am two years smarter. <laughs> um, and so I've been you know, doing a lot of work um, with people around changing their behaviors, bringing mindfulness in. And I kind of wanted to catch up with you. You're you've moved in very sort of entrepreneurial directions, it seems, in terms of apps and also in terms of not moving entrepreneurially faster than the research can support it, which is which is nice. So, so yeah, I wonder, critical, I would say. <laughs> yeah, that's another word. <laughs> So I wonder if you just like what what have you been up to in the last two years, and then maybe we'll we'll circle back for people who didn't listen to the first interview and kind of get the the foundation. Sure. So I can start with the academic bit. I moved down to Brown University. I'm the director of research and innovation at the Mindfulness Center here at Brown. The, the what center? Mindfulness uh, the Center. Mindfulness Center. Okay. Did they did they build that for you? They had a mindfulness center, uh, and we injected about 15 people into it from, <laughs> from the other place. So it uh, gave it a bit of a bit of a boost, let's say. Gotcha. And also have been really thinking about how best to you know, get uh, some of the research that we've been looking into out into the world. You know, as a clinician, as a psychiatrist myself. I see a lot of people suffering and so have really looked to see what are the best modalities to uh, disseminate evidence-based research. And there, there are a fair number of ironies here, but, uh, you know, we have these, these weapons of mass distraction at our disposal. <laughs> and we also learn in context, you know, we learn most, we set up habits um, in context. So we don't really learn, for example, we don't learn to smoke or to overeat in our therapist's office. So somebody comes to my clinic and I try to help them, you know, with that in person. It, it, hopefully it is helpful, um, but it also has the limitation of not helping them, you know, in, in their in their house, in their kitchen. You know, this might bring back uh, ideas of of doctors making house calls. You know? yeah. <laughs> like, um, so if I can't make a house call, I can kind of replicate and uh, disseminate this type of work through apps. So we've been developing a number of apps and studying them to see if we can actually help people learn in context. 
Gotcha. So I, um, you invited me to join the Eat Right Now app. Um, so about two years ago, um, what what when you started creating apps, what did you look at in terms of like what what was going to be effective, what wasn't? You know, just before before you jumped in, what what were the the fundamental assumptions you made about how how to build an app? <laughs> Do you want the truth? <laughs> <laughs> my re my listeners can handle the truth. All right, you want the truth? You can't. Yes, they can handle the truth. Uh, the truth is that when we started the first one, we just jumped in. Uh -huh. uh, we had done some clinical trials with smoking, mindfulness training for smoking cessation, gotten you know five times the quit rates of gold standard treatment. We'd worked out the behavioral mechanisms by which they were quitting smoking, and uh, you know Yale uh, kind of set up a startup, you know, in a startup incubator, and, and got us started to, to making probably one of the first therapeutic apps. This was back in like 2012, before people were really that familiar with what apps were, mm. uh, that weren't like a video game or, or iTunes or something like that. <laughs> so, so we kind of took our manualized evidence-based treatment, cut it into bite-sized pieces, and started delivering it through videos, through animations, and in the moment exercises. And at the time, we had a, a young CEO of our uh, company, which is now called Mind Sciences, who was a documentary filmmaker. Uh, it, it, that was her background. And she was good at shooting, you know, setting up and producing video. So that was you know, one thing that helped us. And we took some of the lessons that we had learned, you know, from in person and said, okay, how much can we port this into app based training? And let's just say that was version 1.0. We've <laughs> we're now probably at version 3.0, where we've done a ton of iterative testing and user-centered design, kind of revamped the whole platform, and even in the process set up two more, you know, the the Eat Right Now program, like you talked about uh, or you mentioned earlier, but also even one for anxiety called Unwinding Anxiety. And so we took a lot of lessons around, you know, what do people need, what do they want what's going to help them be able to understand a program and follow the flow of a program because we deliver quite a bit of uh, content through these, mm, right. you know, like 30 core modules plus theme weeks. Um, we have an online community that's integrated into the program and all these things. And so we spent the last, what, six, seven years now really uh, diving into how we can make these things really sing and, we might have talked about this before, but we've now published some uh, studies like with our Eat Right Now program. We've got a 40% reduction in craving-related eating. We're doing more studies to look at how we can reduce reward valuation. We just published a study with our Craving Equip program for smoking showing that we can actually target specific brain regions and the reductions in, those brain, in that brain activity uh, uh, predicts uh, reductions in cigarette smoking with an app, you know, uh, and even did a study with our Unwinning Anxiety program with anxious physicians. Get this, ready? We got a 57% reduction in clinically validated anxiety scores. And we also got a concomitant 
50% reduction in burnout, even though we didn't teach them anything in the program about burnout. We had found that there's a correlation between certain aspects of burnout and anxiety. And lo and behold, when the anxiety drops, the, those aspects of burnout reduce as well. Oh, wow. So I, I, we've been busy. Wow. <laughs> I have so many questions. Uh, good thing I'm taking notes so I can go back to them. Is there, I mean, is, is it possible that the, the link between anxiety and burnout is just sort of um, the both of them are the same response to just learning how to be mindful? Like, you know, like it's the mindfulness itself that that has all these benefits. And so it's, it might, might even be sort of a, a specious correlation between anxiety and burnout. Like if you reduce anxiety through another way, it wouldn't have an impact. Yeah, it's a great question. We, we looked at correlations between anxiety and aspects of burnout, both at baseline and then after people had gone a month and three months through the program. At baseline, we found a pretty strong correlation. So before anybody got any type of mindfulness training, mm. my sense is that mindfulness targets a similar mechanisms where when people get caught up in anxiety, in worry, in anxiety-based habit loops, um, they also have this protective response. Um, we think of this in terms of empathy fatigue, you know, so to set up any habit, we have a trigger, a behavior and a, and a result. And so let's say that the trigger, you know, a physician walks into a patient's room and the trigger is that they see that their patient is suffering because that is unpleasant, right, to see somebody suffering. Um, their response, their behavioral response might be to protect themselves, to close down as a way to, you know, not get burnt out. Because imagine, you know, <laughs> empathizing with your patients 40 hours a week, you're basically suffering 40 hours a week. So the response is that they close down and become more um, depersonalized or callous. Uh, I think callousness is the current way that they're describing these mouse-like burnout inventory items. And so that that can loop itself into a habit where they form a habit in the same way that they might uh, learn to worry or to overeat or whatever. And so if we can target the same pathway and help people see that that type of you know, closing down is actually harming themselves and also not helping them connect with their patients, but also that through mindfulness, they can actually learn a different way of relating to their patients where they can have a compassionate response where they don't have to worry about protecting themselves because they're not, they're not getting caught up in that uh, reaction. Mm. Uh, it might it might reduce both anxiety and burnout as well. That's our hypothesis. I see. Because the way I've always thought about burnout is that it's your job is not lo is no longer meaningful, right? It's not just there's a lot of stress, but like why am I even doing this? It's so it's so hard and unpleasant, and so the the checking out the becoming the more you ca callous you are. The, the less meaningful the work has to be. I could certainly see that. I, and I don't want to speak for all physicians, but my sense is that physicians still feel like even when they're getting the beat down, that their that job is meaningful, you know, helping people <laughs> who mm. are suffering. It's tough to make that not meaningful. Mm. I think some of the other aspects where they're out of, you know, they don't feel like they have much autonomy. Uh, there's this whole electronic medical record uh, fiasco where, you know, people are spending more time like uh, responding to their computer because they're required to than yeah. being able to work with their patients. So there are a lot of things that can make uh, make the job feel meaningless. Mm. But the core reason that people are there hasn't changed. And I don't. I haven't seen this with physicians where they're 
they're just like, oh, you know, I, I'm sick of taking, I don't like taking care of people anymore. I really haven't, I haven't seen that that much unless somebody is like super burnt mm-hmm. out and they're, they just can't, you know, they're, they're having trouble relating to anything. Gotcha. But once, once they learn the mindfulness uh, techniques to then be able to hold, to be in, the, to be aware of themselves and the other person sort of to, to sort of hold everything then the the EMR and all the all the BS becomes more manageable because it's counterbalanced. It becomes a little more manageable. It's interesting. We found that callousness scores drop by about 50 percent, but um, like uh, emotional exhaustion only dropped by about 20 percent. It was still significant, mm. but it doesn't mean that suddenly, you know, they're working fewer hours or their EMR has magically disappeared. So we even see a differential reduction in the different burnout scores based on you know what we're seeing. And I think part of that might be related to where when they can see that they can actually relate to their patients in a way where they're, they're not suffering, the suf- suffering is actually optional. It brings back meaning and um, and purpose because they can, you know, it feels good to connect with other people. And I think that helps as well. Hmm. I'm, and I'm wondering if when, when the doctors have this realization, you know, not just as a, a platitude, but as an experience lived, if that if they can then help their patients who are suffering, some, I think they can. I think they are more effective. At least I feel more effective when I when I'm not feeling you know yeah. burnt down. Right. I mean specifically around that lesson that if you're so mm. if, if you if, if someone can see you know like I run ultra marathons and there are people who can run an ultra marathon and I can see them in pain but not suffering like they're not yes. whining they're not complaining they're not you know asking the heavens why they were born whereas you know like that would be my default if I didn't have these role models yes i think that's a great example and i think there are some real parallels there you know we can have pain without the suffering. That's why I love this equation, you know, suffering equals pain times resistance. Mm. So, so if we're resisting the pain, our suffering goes up. If we're not resisting the pain, the pain is still there, but we're not suffering. We could even be, you know, God forbid, in, enjoying the the feeling of, you know, really working hard. Yeah. yeah. So um, the 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 resistance, though, feels like I'm keeping it at bay. And so how do you get people to take that first step into mindfulness, which is like, you know, Judd, walk, go walk into the fire. <laughs> you know, does, do, do people like, no, 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 like, like, I'm good. Yeah, well, that's the natural response is, are you kidding me? <laughs> you know, that looks pretty painful. I think the first place to start, and I often see this, is when people have tried everything else. Mm. So often, you know, people try to think their way through a problem. And I like, what's that Einstein quote, you can't solve the same, you can't solve a problem with the same consciousness that created it. Mm-hmm. So if we have tried all of the thinking remedies and none of them have worked, we're going to actually be open to trying something else. And that's where we can take a leap of faith where we might see somebody who has benefited from mindfulness training, for example, or read a study where it's like, oh, you know, 40% reduction in craving related eating, huh, there must be something to this. 
and we take this leap of faith to says, okay, well, let me try this, um, you know, paradoxically, let me try this. And we see this a lot with our eRight Now program where people, you know, we say to people, this is not about dieting. This is not about trying to force yourself because willpower doesn't work. It's actually probably an illusion. Um, so go ahead and eat. And they're actually really afraid to just let themselves eat. But it's really critical to actually, you know, the only way out is through. It's really critical to actually turn toward their nemesis and see that it's not actually some big, terrible thing. It's just, oh, here's, you know, here's here's all this. Here's something that I might have even resisted before or tried, you know, willpower or whatever. And the only way that I can actually get get, you know, past this is through it. And they start to realize, you know, it's not terrible. And they actually can learn a ton in the process. And through that learning, it starts to awaken their curiosity and their interest and their exploratory you know, uh, learning where they can actually start to understand how their mind works. And then they realize, oh, I can actually work with my mind. But paradoxically, they had to actually be there, show up and, you know, and, and um, go through in order to... Um, <laughs> And, you know, get out, so to speak. Uh, yeah. So when, when I uh, uh, I told a friend of mine that I was going to have this conversation with you, um, his name is Glenn, Glenn Livingston. He wrote a book called Never Binge Again, and he wanted me to ask you a couple of questions specifically about that. Oh, um, great. So um, what one of them? Let me just let me just get the word. So um, just can, can mindfulness help regulate cravings for commercially manufactured foods that are engineered specifically to overcome our best judgment and evolutionary apparatus? Like, you know, you, you, you wouldn't you wouldn't take mindfulness into like breaking a cocaine habit. Like you tell the person, like, don't do cocaine. <laughs> right. Are there are there foods that are kind of the same or can, can mindfulness really overcome like no matter the you know, the the bliss point engineering? Yeah. So I think the short answer is yes. And the more el elaborated answer is, you know, food is different than uh, cocaine or heroin or alcohol, let's say, because, you know, it can alter, it can be a mind altering substance, but not in the same way that we get the same really large dopamine rush, for example, when we block the dopamine transporter with cocaine. Or, you know, the, the same rush that we get from, you know, injecting heroin or something like that. When somebody is high, it's hard to be mindful. Okay. Now, I haven't met anybody uh, that has been that high eating Oreos, for example. Uh -huh. But what we can notice is a couple of things. One, with that food, we can start to see in, in the moment what the results of eating that food uh, are. So for example, somebody eats a cookie and, you know, the sugar makes them, you know, want to eat the cookie again. I'll give a, a personal example. <laughs> um, I, not too long ago, we had some friends over for dinner and they, uh, one of them is an amazing, uh, baker and he bakes some fresh, uh, chocolate chip cookies. He brought them over for dessert and I ate the first chocolate chip cookie and it was delicious. And I was immediately reaching for the next one. Like just totally, you know, it's like beeline for the next cookie. <laughs> the second one, and it was like I was out of control, you know, third cookie. Now, so I ate three cookies, and I probably easily 
well, I shouldn't say easily because I couldn't easily stop at one. But the, the, when I looked back on it, and even in the moment, I was noticing that the second, second cookie didn't taste as good and the third cookie didn't taste nearly as good because my, you know, the bliss point, so to speak, was, was being saturated. And so from that, I was actually just really paid attention to see what I could learn from that. And I actually became disenchanted with eating that many chocolate chip cookies, okay? So here was something where we can actually take, you know, an experience and I could say, oh, bad Judd, you ate three chocolate chip cookies, you know? But in fact, I could bow to it as a teacher and say, oh, wow, I ate three chocolate chip cookies. What the heck was my mind up to and what can I learn from this? And since then, I actually laid down this pretty strong memory that reminded me what it actually felt like to eat that third cookie and also what it felt like afterwards. Mm. <laughs> it just didn't feel that good. So I became disenchanted. Uh, the, you can think of it as the reward value has dropped. And I can, when I eat cookies now, I'm much less excited to eat more than a little bit. Because I, I very clearly remember what that reward value was. And I can kind of simulate, okay, what's it going to be like to eat this next cookie? What, what's it going to be like to eat, even eat this next bite? <laughs> and, that, and that simulation, our brains actually, when we simulate doing behaviors, we actually draw heavily upon our previous behavior and the memories of those previous behaviors. And that's really what mindfulness can help us do is to learn right in that moment what, you know, what we're actually getting from a certain behavior so that it doesn't necessarily change it in that moment, but it helps us learn for the next time. Mm. So I guess the, what mindfulness can do is, is help sort of jigger the calculus of pleasure now, pain later. Yeah, or, and even pain now. Yeah, like it, it the, adds like, oh, this is, this is less fun than I thought it was going to be. Yes, yes, uh. right in this moment. So first cookie, great. And now, for me, it's much easier to stop with the first cookie. Uh, and do you think that's true across the board? Because I know people write about, you know, diff different susceptibilities, that there's people who can have some sugar and, like, you know, their brain lights up like a pinball machine and, like, they're totally, like, they need to abstain 100%, whereas other people, like, do you, do you find that mindfulness can kind of even, even that all out and, and it's a tool that everyone could use? It's a really good question. So we see this in our Eat Right Now community. There's a lot of discussion around some people saying, you know, I just can't eat any sugar because it is totally, you know, just gets makes me become a zombie and I just eat more and more sugar. Others can see that it actually drives them to eat more sugar and that that unpleasant drive is actually helps them disen get disenchanted from eating sugar. And so they move away from eating refined sugar and, you know, and eating more complex carbohydrates and whatnot and whatnot. We're actually doing a study right now to look to see uh, how much people can actually reduce that reward value through uh, mindful simulation, basically paying attention as they're eating, which then helps them see more clearly what that reward value is. And then in the future, you know, okay, you're about to eat this thing. Imagine eating it and see if that, if we can model out that reward value. So, yeah. so stay tuned. We'll see if that works across the board. Um, but my sense is that as humans, we all have the same basic learning mechanisms. And so one piece that I can say is that the more we pay attention and start to see the relationship between this cause and effect, you know, like I eat a bunch of sugar and this is what I get, 
the more clearly we can see this, my guess is the more uh, more likely someone is, regardless of their genetics or their background mm -hmm. or whatever, um, the, the more likely they are to get become disenchanted. Wow, this this is connecting in my mind with a um, something totally off the topic, which is there's this uh, um, researcher in the '80s. I think he's still he's still around, but I know his work from the '80s. I think Stephen Krashen who was an expert on, on language acquisition. And he had he had these theories that still nobody does. But basically, the, the language is acquired through um, comprehensible input in basically a very safe environment. And mm. I think what, what, what's coming to me is like mindfulness creates the safe environment, whereas if you're eating it and, and there's anxiety, then you're not getting the comprehensible input of the second and third cookies. It, absolutely. So I, that makes so much sense to me. If you think, do you know Carol Dweck's work from yeah. uh, you know about thirty years ago as well, where she talked about fixed versus growth mindset? And basically, yeah. when we're in fixed mindset, we can't learn new things. When we're in growth mindset, we can. And if you think about mindfulness, it helps us move from being stuck or contracted or closed down, like anxiety, right? It leads to this closed down state. We can't learn when we're anxious. Can't, can't remember anything except that we were anxious. <laughs> but when we can bring mindfulness in and kind of help unwind that anxiety, it helps us open into a growth mindset so that we can actually be receptive to learning and even move into more interest-based curiosity you know, exploration. There's a, one other piece to this. So I think that makes a lot of sense. And I'll just add that there are actually two different types of curiosity. One is based on deprivation, which is a more closed down quality where it's like, oh, what's that piece of information? I can't remember. I'm going to go look it up. And so it kind of drives us to do that. Mm. Sound familiar? <laughs> Motivated drive. That's just like, you know, taking cocaine. Whereas the other is interest-based curiosity, which is much more open and has a very different vibe to it and is probably more positively reinforcing from a completely different standpoint instead of driving something that says you have to do this it just you know it's that out there exploring being curious enjoying the journey rather than having to you know get something get get somewhere um you know have that destination in mind mm. yeah the other thing this is bringing up for me is a couple of weeks ago i interviewed uh, a woman uh, adrian marie brown who's a, an activist who wrote a book called pleasure activism and you know sort of very very unabashedly saying like pleasure food pleasure clothing pleasure sex pleasure drugs pleasure is important for people who want to be activists that we reclaim it and what she said like you know she spent her 20s doing all those things in an unhealthy way and what she came to realize is like the key thing was are you satisfiable right yes and so what this what mindfulness brings in is this idea of like it's like a satisfiability meter that gets turned online. Like all of a sudden there's there's a new switch. There's a new, uh, you know, gauge on your on your mental dashboard um, that you that that can keep that can make you happier than when it wasn't there. I think that's a really interesting point. And that actually lines up pretty nicely with the different types of rewards that we look at. So, for example, uh, the typical uh, market economy based reward is, you know, buy something, eat something, get something right. Uh, it could be as simple as, you know, I'm bored, I'm going to be restless. And so I'm going to go look at cute pictures of puppies on Instagram or something like that. Right. Mm -hmm. So get something to be satisfied. 
Well, that's scratching an itch. You know, there's that itch of restlessness that we scratch by, you know, looking at cute pictures of the puppies, which actually reinforces the process where we have to look at more. <laughs> Same for eating. You know, we eat to make ourselves feel better. We have to eat more. We learn that, you know, it becomes a habit. Those are all based on a drive that is closed down, that's, that's itchy, restless, motivated, that says, do this. That's really different than satisfaction. Does satisfaction feel closed or does it feel open? What would you say? Mm. Um, when I'm satisfied, mm -hmm. it feels like, okay, that's, that's done. What's the next thing that's coming? It's, it's, it's like a curiosity. Like Yes, yes. So I don't need anything else, right? Because I'm, mm -hmm. I'm satisfied. So there's no drive that says, go do this, go do this. And like you point out, curiosity itself with this open quality to it has a very different vibe in terms of the reward value of it. And even thinking, I like the word contentment. Mm. You know, we can actually, as we pay attention, we can learn that we can actually be pretty content in most situations, even when we aren't out there getting excited things. Mm -hmm. you know, or doing things to be excited. And there's actually a great, I love this quote from a, it was a Burmese meditation teacher, Saida Upandita, who talked about how we, ex we mistake excitement of the mind for happiness. We, ex we mistake excitement of the mind for happiness. And that's because the whole world is telling us, trying to get us to be excited because that gets us to consume. <laughs> <laughs> Where in fact, if we sit back and we realize, you know, I'm good, I'm good. <laughs> There's this contentment that actually feels better because it's not urging us to go do something. Yeah, yeah I, I had that experience yesterday at the Apple store because I, I have like the world's oldest surviving iPhone, I think, or at least that's what everybody tells me. It's this teeny little, you know, uh, iPhone five form factor and everyone's got these new ones and they're, you know, shooting all these videos and things. And and I feel like, oh, my God, like I need a new one. And then the it stopped working. Like I can't hear people when they call me like the little there's a little speaker up near my ear that stopped working. And I started getting excited like, oh, maybe I can get the XR or the S. I wonder which one's better. And then I decided like I took it in. They looked at it, 130 bucks to repair. Definitely not going to spend that money. I'd rather get a new one. But then I thought I can just plug in headphones or or play it through, you know, the speaker. And I left so happy that I that like I'm content with this old iPhone that like I don't know if it'll last a week or a month or two more years, but just and partly it was the the end of the craving for the new one that felt really good. Ah, content. Oh, I don't <laughs> need this. I don't have to do this. That's great. That's a great example. <laughs> And we can actually be pretty content. We can learn to be pretty content with most things. You know? Well, the other thing I was remembering, like this morning I picked it up. I'm like, you know, like remembering like the relationship, like, you know, the day we met and I like how excited I was to pick up this brand new iPhone, like the top of the line processor. And I kind of like recaptured a little bit of that. <laughs> it's like, you know, what happened? Like it didn't change. Right. <laughs> uh, so, so you mentioned the the uh, reward value, reward valuation, and I, I think I understand it in context, but it sounds like something would be helpful if, if you could kind of define like in terms of theory and research. 
Yeah, we can unpack that a little bit more, and it's obviously something that we're actively investigating. So there's a part of our brain called the orbitofrontal cortex, and I think of this as the BBO part of the brain. It's always looking for a bigger, better offer. <laughs> okay. So, for example, uh, we use food as an example. If I eat some broccoli and then I eat some milk chocolate, my brain makes a comparison and says, you know, which one tastes better? You know, which one would, would I rather have? It makes a value. Uh-huh. You know, and what, what's, that, what's that part of the brain called again? The orbitofrontal cortex. It's mm-hmm. part of the prefrontal cortex. Uh, yeah, the OFC. Okay. So that's, is that, that's our, like, um, human part of the brain, like the, the, the recent bit? It is one of the youngest parts, yes. Okay. Youngest parts from an evolutionary perspective. Okay. Uh, and so you can, you can imagine it sets up um, reward hierarchies. So for me, it's like broccoli and then milk chocolate and then dark chocolate. And then, you know, there's like dark chocolate with a little bit of chili pepper in it. And then there's, you know, this type of dark chocolate from this, you know, brand that has really smooth and then this, and then, you know, and so, so I've got this whole hierarchy, my chocolate hierarchy set up in my orbitofrontal cortex. Okay. So what that does is helps us basically make decisions because our brain is always looking for that bigger, better offer. And so when giving an, when given an option, my brain, you know, it says A or B and it says, I'll take B based on previous behavior. So what that does is, is really set up this, this whole framework for, you know, decision making and how, how we make decisions from everything from, you know, eating to finding a mate, uh, you know, so we date a bunch and we say, oh, you know, this is then finally, you know, we make it, we might make a decision or we might go with all the options that people have now, you know, like they could never be satisfied because <laughs> they can always swipe right or left or whichever direction on, on Tinder. And, you know, it's like, oh, maybe there will be somebody else. Maybe and I can find that bigger, better, you know, you know, bigger, better offer and never be satisfied. So that's how that, you know, that that part of the brain is, uh, works is to help us in, in theory to help us make decisions um, based on our previous behaviors. And so how that works in lines up with reward based learning is that, um, you know, reward based learning is based on rewards, not on the behavior itself. And so. And if we want to not overeat, we can't just tell ourselves to stop overeating because obviously it doesn't work, but we can pay attention to the results. So for example, for me with those three cookies, I can pay attention to the result of eating that third cookie to see, you know, how valuable was that. And if I really pay attention, it gives my orbitofrontal cortex accurate and updated information. So I can lay down a good memory that says, you know, do you really want to do that again? So I can draw back on that memory the next time I'm presented with an opportunity to three to eat, you know, that third home baked cookie. Gotcha. And so then, and then it's it's not about willpower. It's actually being driven by this reward system that we always that I have always thought of as my downfall. Yes. And in fact, you know, willpower has been debated and, you know, back in in ancient Greece, you know, in the Parthenon, there's this apparently there's a relief of a a rider on a horse, which is supposed to symbolize, you know, this this fight between reason and passion. You know, it's like the, the rider is the you know, is the reason trying to rein in this horse that's, that's, you know, our, our, uh, our passions. And so from 
for a very, very long time, people have had this argument, but there's actually no neuroscience to suggest that we actually have willpower. I just met with somebody, there's a research, a cognitive neuroscience here, uh, scientist here at Brown uh, named David Better, who's writing a book on this. And we were having this discussion. And I said, you know, I really can't find in the cognitive neuroscience literature that people talk about willpower as a thing. You know, in fact, people have, um, they've gone down this whole, probably a rabbit hole around uh, willpower depletion, mm-hmm. where the, the evidence is somewhat equivocal. Well, it might be equivocal because there's, they might be studying something that doesn't even exist. <laughs> so <laughs> how can you deplete something that doesn't exist in the first place? And the way that a lot of cognitive neuroscientists think about will, um, you know, cognitive control is around gating functions and reward valuation and all this stuff. So there are a lot of factors that play into how our, you know, how we control things. But <laughs> none of them talk about this as being some willpower-based thing. <laughs> fascinating. Wow. This is like sh- we're studying Schrodinger's cookie. <laughs> right, Schrodinger's cookie. How many did Schrodinger <laughs> eat? <laughs> <laughs> Well, I mean, so, I mean, you could say like, you know, will, willpower, it's, it exists experientially for us, though, doesn't it? Like, here I am going to say no to this thing and I can mm-hmm. I can white knuckle some things, you know, and, and, and like in our program, like we talk about, um, and, you know, maybe you're going to debunk this and I have to go and make 40 new videos. But the idea of like anti-fragilizing yourself by winning fight throughs. Like don't don't wait in the car while your spouse goes shopping because you're afraid of the cookie aisle. But like like every so like when you think you can, like walk up to that aisle, walk past it, walk at the and then keep going and like build the muscle of of saying no. Do you think that's that's uh, off the mark now? So we're actually we can study this, right? And we can look to see well what exactly is that quote unquote, muscle of saying no. Is it based on, for example, uh, what a lot of cognitive neuroscientists are studying is reward value. And this is actually what we're seeing in our Eat Right Now program and studying this as well is, can we give our brain a bigger, better offer? Like, does it actually feel good to quote unquote, say no, to walk Mm. down the aisle and not not buy whatever? So it doesn't mean it, walking down the aisle, you know, doesn't exist, right? That, that's true. And not picking up the whatever is true. But if we actually look at the circumstances and what's happening, we can dial down into say, well, what actually supported cognitive control in that moment? Does it feel good to walk down the aisle and not buy the food? And if so, so you could even formulate a hypothesis, if so, if somebody really pays attention to the reward value, the next time they walk down the aisle, they could go and remember, what did it feel like last time when I didn't buy these cookies? Oh, uh-huh. it felt good. And that uh-huh. could actually reinforce the process even more through tapping into the specific mechanisms that might actually be driving the process. Gotcha. This reminds me of Dan Ariely's concept of benign masochism, like which he sees in like, you know, triathletes and endurance athletes. Um, whereby, you know, we're, we're, we're front shifting the reward to look at me. I'm such a badass. Yeah. Like, like, yeah, because we frame it in terms of like, you're going to win a cage match instead of getting mugged by these foods. And so I think there's, there is, yeah, there is this feeling of this is pleasurable. This, this denying myself pleasure is pleasurable. Yes. It's rewarding. Feels good. (sighs) That's so cool. Um, 
Cool. What else? Um, yeah, I guess the, the other thing I was thinking is that um, so the, what mindfulness, I guess, can do in terms of shifting and, and you you wrote about this beautifully in The Craving Mind, and it's it's part of the, the early videos that I watched for you right now is you're you're when you're practicing mindfulness, you can catch yourself earlier and earlier and earlier in the in that habit loop, um, as opposed to like, you know, the dog poops on the rug and you come home four hours later and yell at it and it has no effect versus like clicker training to right. to 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 intercept the behavior right when it happens. Is that sort of how you see mindfulness changing the reward valuation? Yes, and I think it can actually change it in multiple ways. So we have the power of memory where we can actually go, kind of play the tape back and say, what was the cause and effect relationship back then? So if we um, so, for example, if we ate three cookies and then we got a stomach ache later, we can actually play the tape back and say, oh, wait a minute, that, you know, that wasn't, that actually didn't feel that good. So that we can actually still learn from previous behaviors, uh, even after they're over. So we can actually look afterwards, retrospectively. And as long as we can draw up what it actually feels like, that, that um, felt sensation is what helps to lay down memory so that it, we become less enchanted in the future. So we can look afterwards, we can reflect on our behaviors, we can look during the behavior, like as we're doing it, like the clicker training that you're talking about, we can say, well, what am I getting from this right now? And both of those build up to then being able to reflect on it before we do the behavior. When we're about to reach for the cookie, we can say, you really want to do that? And we can recall those previous experiences. So I would say as humans, we have this unique ability to potentially unique ability to go back and remember previous behaviors um, that can actually help the formative process of learning in, you know, in the present moment and for the future. But it sounds like we have to remember them in a specific way. Like I, I'm on a I, I lurk on a Facebook group for weight loss. That is a very sort of sad, unsophisticated place. And I have to keep my mouth shut all the time because I just want to learn and, you know, market research. And, pe and people there are aware that they're overeating or eating the wrong foods or is making them miserable. There's a lot of shame. Like if learning worked that way, if you could just look back and go, oh, I shouldn't do that. There wouldn't be any alcoholics. There wouldn't be drug addicts. There wouldn't be overeaters. Right. But they're they're remembering it in terms of very cognitively there's or there's yeah. a lot of shame or guilt what so when you say uh, felt sensation like what differentiate that from from the you know guilt yeah i think of this as the you know in our head we can be up in our head and, and this is the shoulds right we should all over ourselves <laughs> i shouldn't do this i should i should do that that's not actually what drives behavior this is also probably uh, another uh, suggestion that willpower isn't really <laughs> what, what drives all of our behavior because we're like, oh, I should do that. I, then we just would change the behavior right then. What I'm talking about is the, you know, instead of the thinking mind, it's the feeling body. You know, what does it feel like? What's the actual result in my body when I overeat? What does it feel like? Does my stomach feel bloated? And this can also include, do I feel guilty? Do I feel lethargic, you know, all these things are come together. But the critical piece is really looking at our direct experience rather than thinking, you know, I shouldn't do this, I should do that. And also when we're feeling guilty, 
we're in fixed mindset, right? Oh man, I can't believe it. We're not actually in a good place to learn. But when we actually just open to our experience, and this is where mindfulness can help as well, we open our experience and say, oh, wow, oh, I can't believe I ate those three cookies. Wow, check this out. And then we can, again, we can bow to that as an opportunity to learn rather than self-flagellate for, you know, or feel guilty because we can't actually learn in that moment. So this is really about the direct embodied experience. Does that help? Yeah, 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 it does a lot. Um, so in the last uh, few minutes before we let you commute home, um, I want to hear like how this is going into the marketplace. Like and I was especially thinking about that when you're talking about reducing burnout by 50 percent, um, reducing callous, callousness by 57 percent in doctors. Like I'm thinking like every med school, every hospital, every practice in the country should be doing this. So you've got these apps. What's the What's the acceptance of them, the dissemination? What are you know, any barriers to them? Like, how, how is this changing the world? <laughs> well, we're a pretty small outfit and I'm not, you know, I, I'm not a, um, <laughs> I'm not a, on, uh, well, I guess I'm, I am a bit of an entrepreneur because it's just been really ever since I was a kid, you know, I was interested in, you know, how do we do stuff um, and how can we get stuff out there? But we have a pretty small team at Mind Sciences that's working on this. So we've largely taken a grassroots approach. And our aim was to start with a couple of simple things, like make sure the science is solid, make sure the science is really solid, <laughs> um, and then also provide a really good user experience. And so if we can build something that's, that people just love, then they're going to tell their friends about it. And so largely that's been the approach is, is word of mouth where you know, we do the clinical studies, we publish those, um, you know, we might, I might write a blog for psychology today or, you know, do an op-ed here or there or do a podcast and people hear about it and they try the programs. They look at our science, they say, well, you know, this is pretty solid. Uh, and they try the program and they say, wow, you know, this is really helpful. And then they're so excited about it, they tell their friends. So we've largely taken that approach. It's been interesting. We've seen a lot of physicians and clinicians like nutritionists, psychologists, uh, health coaches who've been really excited about these programs because this helps them do their job better. <laughs> you know, mm -hmm. uh, the busy primary care clinician has, you know, what, seven, eight minutes to see somebody. And so somebody, somebody comes in with a bunch of anxiety and they don't, you know, there aren't great medications for that. The benzodiazepines are addictive, all this. Um, they can actually recommend our unwinding anxiety app, send somebody out the door, and somebody can come back three weeks later transformed. I remember one physician saying she had offered um, an SSRI to one of her patients plus our unwinding anxiety app. The kid came, it was a relatively young person, like, you know, 18 to 21, something like that. He came back three weeks later said, you know, I didn't want to take the Zoloft because, you know, but I tried the app and like his, his depression was <laughs> like significantly better. His anxiety was significantly better. <laughs> and so when we get those, those little situations like that, where, you know, a clinician spends five minutes with a patient and the patient comes back transformed, thanking their clinician, um, that seems to be something that is really helpful for folks where we can help. It's a win-win. The clinicians win because they, They've helped their patient. It feels good to your patient for your patient to be doing better. And also the patient goes out and, and is really excited. You know, I just learned about um, 
a preacher in a in a, uh, in a church in a, like a very large uh, church. I think it's called Crossroads or something. Who in his, one of his sermons he talked about our Eat Right Now program because his physician, you know, he tried the dieting and the yo-yo dieting didn't work. And then his physician said, hey, why don't you try this app, this Eat Right Now app? And the guy was, he was three or four weeks in, and he was so excited about it, he put it into his sermon that you know, told a bunch of people about it. So that's largely what we've been relying on is to make something that's really good, make sure that the science is there, and then you know get it out uh, to clinicians. Uh, we've even created a, um, a free healthcare provider course where clinicians can learn about mindfulness, learn about the evidence, learn about habit change and things like that. Um, and as part of that, you know, they can they can learn more about the apps. Uh, they can get free CMEs through Brown, all this stuff. So we're actually um, really seeing if we can support clinicians in this way. Um, because the supporting of them in helping their patients actually spreads the word and gets the apps out there as well. That's, that's really smart. Um, so you mentioned you mentioned at the beginning the irony of using the, the weapons of mass distraction. So I'm wondering, do you feel like I mean, are there compromises to be made? Like your app is sitting there on the screen surrounded by like 19 other apps that might be flashing. They might have the little red numbers on them. Like, do you how do you get people to continue to interact rather than, oh, I just, you know, I did it for a day or two and then I forgot about it and I'm just scrolling Instagram. Yeah, the aim is to make it, give them a, a quick win, so to speak, where they can actually learn something about their mind immediately. So we want them to go away from the first interaction having learned something. And what's it feel like when you learn something? It feels good. Mm. <laughs> so, so we give them a zero calorie reward <laughs> <laughs> with all of these programs. And the idea is that we start there and then we build from there. And so we help people. We give them the ability to tap into intrinsically motivating and intrinsically rewarding behaviors that are always available that they didn't notice that they had, like curiosity, kindness, uh, generosity. And so the more we can build those in, the more they're going to see that this is actually a bigger, better offer than playing, you know, Angry Birds or whatever the latest video game is, because that just leaves us depleted, not satisfied, wanting more. Whereas, as you talked about earlier, we can find the satisfaction that comes with learning something about ourselves, that comes with connecting with others, that comes with being kind to ourselves in terms of, you know, not eating that third cookie or, um, you know, letting go of the, the worry habit loop that we've had, you know, forever. Um, so our aim is to really build those intrinsically motivating rewards and help people see that they they can actually tap into these pretty easily. Mm. And how, how about the, the, the research changing the face of sort of, you know, cutting edge academic understanding? Because it feels like <clears throat> to me this this past decade has been the decade of grit of, you know, willpower, of all these, you know, autobiographies of people, you know, like the sort of a military militaristic approach to, to self-improvement. Um, do you feel like you're making headway or other people coming around to this? People are starting to. And I think we're seeing this in the cognitive neuroscience field where they're not talking about grit. <laughs> you know, they're like, what's grit? We don't find this in our models. <laughs> you know? So I think. Uh, while those books sell well, uh, 
you know, and people, it's a great idea. It's a great heuristic to think, oh yeah, I'm in control. I'm the master of my own destiny. Now, it doesn't mean that we aren't, but we can actually be more a master of our own destiny. We actually know how our minds work. So I think the next step with this, as we see these things, you know, not live up to their promise, you know, for example, cognitive behavioral therapy, gold standard treatment for National uh, you know, Institute on Drug Abuse. Um, you know, if you look at the quit rates for cocaine, for heroin, for alcohol, for any any drug, they're they're really not not very good. And I say this as an addiction psychiatrist. I wish we had better treatments. So whereas people are looking to, well, what's the next generation? And I think they're really looking mechanistically instead of heuristically to say, you know, what actually is going to affect behavior change. And that's where you know, we're excited. We're pretty well positioned there because we're seeing this, you know, 40% reduction in craving-related eating, five times the quit rates of gold standard treatment for smoking cessation. So when we get it mechanism and you compare that, and again, many of our studies are compared to gold standard cognitive therapy, we got five times the quit rates for smoking compared to cognitive therapy. So when you take these head to head, the next generation is going to be mechanistically based and it's, you know, the outcomes are just going to be better. So I think that's going to be the next decade is, you know, science changes every 10 years as we learn more and more and more how our minds work. And it'll be really interesting to see people come to grips with, you know, the fact that they might not be in as control, as much control as they wanted to be. <laughs> well, yeah, but it feels it feels like it's going to presage a a cultural shift, like the culture of self-improvement, of bootstrapping, of, you know, whatever you could do, whatever you want. It's a you know, it's a it's a, a beautiful and harmful American mythology. But you're, you're sort of talking about a world of, yeah, that we still have uh, agency, but it, but it it's leavened by surrender almost. Yeah, yeah surrender and awareness. You know, <laughs> Let's if see, we it's... pay attention, we, our, our brain actually is really good at learning. And so we can actually harness that that really powerful thing that we have sitting on our shoulders. <laughs> This has been so much fun. I've this. I've. Uh, I'm definitely going to get this one transcribed because I couldn't take notes fast enough. Um, so I want to thank you for taking the time and uh, and for for all the work. Is there any more books coming out <laughs> in my free time? Uh, no. So the craving mind just came out what two years ago, and you know that was about twenty years in the making. I needed to do a lot of research, a lot of personal practice. Uh -huh. In my lab, I had to do a bunch of studies, you know, before I felt comfortable, you know, that we had the science to write something good. I, I think it's going to be a few more years before the next book comes out. Um, but in the meantime, I've actually been putting out a lot of um, material for just learning material. You know, like um, we put together some animations for people to learn about how reward-based learning works. I'm starting to put out more stuff around curiosity uh, this healthcare provider course, you know, online video uh, delivered content. So we're actually trying to meet people in the Instagram age. <laughs> I certainly love to read books, uh, but some people like to get their information through videos, through podcasts, you know, through listening to things. So we're we're starting to put things out that way through my website. It's just uh, drjud.com, D-R-J-U-D.com. Ooh, so that's good, good. Five, five letter dot com that's impressive <laughs> good yeah yeah 
so if anybody's interested in you know learning about our healthcare provider course or about any of these other things, they can just go there. Okay, great. So you offer the course for healthcare providers, and now there's three apps for smoking, eating, and anxiety. Um, anything else can hit the market in the next few months? We're not in the next few months. We're really working on refining the user experience even more. We want it to really sing. Okay. Uh, and then, you know, then we'll move on to the next. Awesome. Well, again, Dr. Judd, D-R-J-U-D dot com is the, uh, the place where people can start exploring all, all the different rabbit holes. And uh, <laughs> thank you so much. I, st I still want to ask about what all the all the scribbles, but uh, you got to go and my brain is full. And I'm <laughs> so I'm, I'm 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 curious and content at the same time. Perfect. Perfect. So, Judd, thank you so much for everything and for uh, for sharing the hour with me today. Thank you. This is a lot of fun. Okay. Take care. All right. I hope you enjoyed that conversation with Judd Brewer. And if you're interested, of course, check out his book, The Craving Mind, and also his apps. I uh, started doing redoing actually Eat Right Now, which I had begun and then I got busy. But you know, I was kind of looking at it from a professional standpoint, like evaluating it. But I realized once I gave it 10 minutes, it was really helpful for me personally and individually. So check those out in the whatever app store is appropriate haha, for you. And uh, let me know what you think. So if you enjoy this episode, one way to help show your support is to leave a review on Apple Podcasts or Stitcher or wherever you get your podcasts. Another way is to become a patron of the show, which you can do over at patreon.com. Just search for Plant Yourself. And as I like to remind people, this show is free for everyone and supported by those who can afford it. So if you are in the fortunate latter group, I would love for you to put your shoulder to the wheel and help us um, move this mission forward. So for more information about WellStart Health, we start new cohorts pretty much every two to three weeks these days. Check out wellstarthealth.com. We do incorporate a lot of the methodology that Judd talked about today, especially in our famous fast assessments, where we get down below the feelings into sensation. I talk a lot about this in the um, Facebook lives that I've been doing daily. By the way, if you if you're not aware of these, I've been doing these for about three weeks every weekday, a Facebook live, usually between 10 and 20 minutes of, uh, you know, our best stuff at Wellstart, just sharing it publicly, sometimes just me, sometimes with uh, Sarah Bowfinger, one of our coaches, sometimes with Josh and other coaches. And I think they're useful. You can uh, interact with me live. And the way to do that is to be on Facebook and either be a fan of the Plant Yourself page and you can check for notifications. Easier is to become a member of the Sick to Fit group, which you can search on Sick to Fit and find it on Facebook and join that. I think that's a, a little bit more responsive in terms of giving you those notifications. Alternately, I figured out a way, thanks to tech guru and chef and cookbook author extraordinary Kathy Hester of simultaneously broadcasting to YouTube live. So if you are a subscriber on the Plant Yourself channel in YouTube, which you should be because uh, that's where I post all the interviews where I get video as well as audio. So you can see people smiling faces while we talk. Um, but if you want to catch my lives, you can do so there as well. And I believe I will see your questions and comments in real time. 
So if you want to find out more about Judd and follow some links to his work, you can do so at the show notes for today's episode, which is plantyourself.com slash 337. In garden news this morning, I pulled out a whole bunch of tomato plants, uh, cherry tomatoes and one uh, full tomato that were just done and a bunch of squash. And we're still at that stage where I can stare at the grapes, but they're not they're not getting any bigger or plumper. I don't know if it's because of the rain or if they're going to stay small, but uh, fingers crossed that in the next month we will have a, uh, a juicy and bountiful scuppernung grape harvest. In running news, did a long, long walk with Mia on the tobacco trail, say eight miles of walking, almost two hours and 20 minutes, which was fun. And I discovered that eight miles is eight miles, that whether it's walking or jogging or running, Eight miles will take it out of you. I kind of felt like eight miles of walking would be a piece of cake, but it was not. So new new learning for me. And the foot's still a little iffy, so I'm resisting the uh, the, the clarion call of, of races and running fast and giving the thing time to heal. So thanks, of course, to Will Ridenauer for allowing me to use his beautiful song, Sabali Don, The Dance of Peace. Check out willridenauer.com for more of his beautiful music. And of course, thanks to all of you Plant Yourself Podcast patrons. Got a couple of new names today. Ready? Kim Harrison, Lynn McClellan, Anthony Disson, Brittany Porter, Dominic Mara, Barbara Whitney, Tammy Black, Amy Good, Amanda Hathaway, Mary Jean Wheeler, Alan Kennelly, Melissa Cobb, Rachel Burns, Christine Nielsen, Tina Sharf, Tina Ahern, Jen Volkanovsky, David Bizek, Mysterious Michelle X, Elizabeth Felton, Victoria Dolomanova, Leia Stoller, Alan Christensen, Colleen Peck, Michelle Entry, Josina, Julianne Rollins, Stu Dominic, Sarah Durkis, Ryan the Circus, Kelly Cameron, Pettison, Leanne Peterson, Janet Selby, Claire Adams, Tom Franzik, Jeanette Ben, Miguel Sarah, David Donnie, Blair Cyber, Dorona Vizo, Joe and Carol, Argentati, Jody Freezer, Ethan Funderburg. Misha Rosen, Michael Warbeck, the equally mysterious, Tracy Z, Alicia Lemons, Rebecca Hughes, Val Lineman, Rhymes with Cinnamon, Nefstig, ne- Nick Harper, Stephanie Holmes, Martha Bergen, Nicole Ramsey, Susan Ahmad, Molly Levine, the Inscrutable, Harry R., Susan Laverty, the Panda, Vegan, Craig Kovic, Adam Scharf, Karen Burry, Heather Morgan, Ashley Corker, and Kelly Machia, Deanne Norton, Bonnie Lynch, and Plant Happy Organs, Sabina Kurtzels, Nigel Davies, Marion Blum, Teresa Copel, Shell Rootless, Julian Watkins, Breed O'Connell, Brian Sheridan, Shannon Hirschman, Kate Rosalind, Ayat, Julie Lang, Holm Hedegaard, Isa Tuzan Wak, Connie Hainline, Aaron Curry, Alicia Davis, Aviva Lael. Heather O'Connor, Carolyn Jensen, Sherry Olakoski of Plant Power for Health, Karen Smith, Scott Marani, Karen and Joe Crabtree, Tanya Lewis, Kirby Burton, Teresa Carell, Kevin McCauley, Elizabeth Rothschild, Kelly Baker, Miracle, and Jesse Cheryl Dwyer, Jenny Hazelton, Valerie Pelletier, Pod, Pat, Peter W. Evans, Colleen Harrison, Justine Divit, Joshua Sommermeyer, Dennis Bird, Darby Kelly, Lori Fanny, Linnea Lundquist, Valerie Hummel, Deb Casilla, Emily Iaconelli, Levy Wallach, Rosamund McAtee, Emma Corny, Stephen Lena, Patty DiMartino, Mike and Donna Karts, Dean Bishop, Bill Brielf, Gunter Schmidt, Marjorie Lewis, Kelly Moulton, Trish Adams, Ian Kramer, Nancy Sheldon. Lindsay Bayshore, Gunmarie Hagen, Tracy Gullis, Laura Heaton, Meg from Mama Says, Rochelle Kennedy, Joan Borstein, Diana Goldman, Stacey Stokes, and Ben Savage for your generous support of the podcast. That's it for this week. As always, be well, my friends. So if you appreciate the Plant Yourself podcast and would like to help support the mission of the show, there's a few easy ways to do it. One is to just go to wherever you get your podcasts and leave a review. Let other people know about it. Give us some stars. Give us some love. 
And that really helps us be found by more people. Something else, of course, you can do is let someone know about this podcast, someone uh, who you think would benefit, send them maybe a couple of episodes that you think would uh, pique their interest, or just uh, ask them to subscribe in general. And third, you can join arms and become a patron, a financial supporter of this show. You may have noticed that there's no advertising in the show and it's free for everyone and it's supported, paid for by those who can afford it. So if you would like to make a one time contribution or an ongoing monthly pledge, you can do so at plantyourself.com slash gift. All right, time for thanks. Thanks to Will Ridenauer for allowing me to use his beautiful song, Sabali Don, The Dance of Peace. You can find more of Will's music at his website, willridenauer.com. And of course, thanks to all of you Plant Yourself podcast patrons. Kim Harrison, Lynn McClellan, Anthony Disson, Brittany Porter, Dominic Mara, Barbara Whitney, Tammy Black, Amy Good, Amanda Heatherly, Mary Jean Wheeler, Ellen Kennelly, Melissa Cobb, Rachel Barons, Christine Nielsen, Tina Sharp, Tina Ahern, Jen Filkonofsky, David Vizek, The Mysterious, Michelle X, Elspeth Feldman, Leah Stoller, Alan Christensen, Colleen Peck, Michelle Andrews, Josina, Sarah Durkis, Rhymes with Circus, Kelly Cameron, Wayne Pedersen, Janet Selby, Kara Adams, Tom Fronsek, Jeanette Benham, Gil Assert, David Donahue, Blair Cybert, Dorona Vizo, Gio and Carol Argentati, Jody Friesner, Ruth Ann Thunderburg, Misha Rosen, Michael Warbeck. The equally mysterious Tracy Z of Eva Lael, Alicia Lemus, Rebecca Hughes, Val Lineman, Rhymes with Cinnamon, Nick Harpers and Martha Bergner, Susan Amon, Molly Levine, the inscrutable Harry R., Susan Laverty, the Panda, Vegan, Craig Kovic, Adam Sharf, Karen Burry, Heather Morgan, Kelly Machia, Deanne Norton, Bonnie Lynch, Plant Happy Oregon, Sabina Kurtzels, Nigel Davies, Marion Blum, Teresa Copel, Julian Watkins, Breed O'Connell, Shannon Hirsch, Shannon Hirschman, Linda Ayat, Holm Hedegaard, Isa Tuzumwa, Connie Hainline, Aaron Greer, Alicia Davis. Heather O'Connor, Carolyn Jensen, Sherry Orlikoski of Plant Powered for Health, Karen Smith, Scott Marani, Karen and Joe Crabtree, Tanya Lewis, Kirby Burton, Teresa Carell, Kevin McCauley, Elizabeth Rothschild, Ann Jesse, Cheryl Dwyer, Jenny Hazelton, Valerie Peltier, Peter W. Evans, Colleen Harrison, Justine Divid, Joshua Sommermeyer, Dennis Bird, Darmy Kelly, Laurie Fanny, Linnea Lundquist, Valerie Hummel, Emily Iaconelli, Levy Wallach, Rosamund McEntee, Dan McCorney, Stephen Lehman. Petty D. Martino, Mike and Donna Cartson, Deanne Bishop, Bill Brielf, Gunter Schmidt, Marjorie Lewis, Kelly Molden, Trisha Adams, Ian Kramer, Nancy Sheldon, Lindsay Bashor, Gunmarie Hagen, Tracy Gullis, Laura Heaton, Meg for Mama Says, Rochelle Kennedy, Diana Goldman, Stacey Stokes, Ben Savage, Michael Kay, Holly Butler, Diana, David Hughes, Connie Rogers, Claire England, Sally Robertson, Parham Ganchi, Amy Daly, Brian Tourville, Mark Jeffrey Johnson, Josie Dempsey, Karen Schmidt. Pamela Hayden, Emily Perryman, Olga Sidoroska, Allison Corbett, Richard Stone, Lauren Vaught, Abedable Musings, Aaron Hasty, Sean Owen, Sagar Nayak, Erica Piedra, and Danielle Roberts for your generous support of the podcast. That's it for today. As always, be well, my friends. <laughs>